world and welcome to the It's Canon Podcast Christmas Extravaganza. Merry Christmas everyone, Merry Christmas guys, we're your hosts, I'm Boris and as always I am joined by Phil. Help us, it's actually the month of March and Boris is forcing us to record early. No, <laughs> happy, Merry Christmas, happy, happy holidays everybody. And Tyler. This episode's brought to you by Basement Wine. <laughs> love it. 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 Um, you know, I was thinking of ways to introduce this show, talk about this show, because you know what? You know, I, I always like talking about what we're going to be talking about right after the introductions. This is the best way I can think of this episode. A smorgasbord of randomness combined with talk and critique of a movie that consists of a John Wick wrapped in bacon, a teenage um, uh, uh, acid dream, and a kid who should not even own a dog. (laughs) Yeah, uh, uh, pretty much sums it up right there. (laughs) Or, as I viewed them, three more movies to prove that we're all commies. (laughs) because these three movies all hate capitalism yep 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 to say the (laughs) least to say the (laughs) least oh lord oh my goodness gotta watch Ghostbusters underbelly our soft underbelly is being exposed Tyler gotta watch that libertarian fant that is Ghostbusters I know right we gotta do that at some point Oh, man, well, Merry Christmas, guys! What what a year it's been! I also like using this show, kind of like this episode, as kind of like a year roundup. Our next episode will be our best and worst of of the year. Uh, but you know, you know, it's been a hell of a year. We did take a break in the middle of the year just because it was just a lot was going on. People were moving, things were going on. We were going through a lot. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, I just want to thank all of our listeners who have been listening to us for the past, you know, almost almost two years now, um, and and kind of stuck through. I want to thank any new listener who has somehow found us, uh, and um, you know, anyone who's listening to this later on. Welcome, uh, you know, honestly, I think the best way, and even back in the day when the show originally started back in 2015, I always used the term of geek therapy, um, you know, this show's original incarnation with Tyler, myself, and this random guy named Kyle, um, you know, it was, it, it was essentially a show about comic books and geek stuff. And, you know, the, the essence of that show is essentially, you know, when you go to your local comic book store you, and, you, and you talk to random people and your friends at said store, that's the the essence, uh, the mantra that I wanted f- for that show. When the show came back, you know, we wanted to expand and, and, and you know, really through, through my 10 plus year friendship with Phil, you know, it just it, it turned into geek therapy. And that's kind of like what I really like. Uh, describing the show as um, you know people describe Seinfeld as a show about nothing well this show this podcast is geek therapy sometimes we're very prepared sometimes we're a lot more prepared than what we sound like but at the end of the day you know we just talk about anything and everything and that's honestly why uh, I, I love the name it's canon which 
I always give credit to Tyler because he is the one who named the podcast. Um, you know, uh, so 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 yeah, it's just, it's been a hell of a ride, um, and and this is now our second Christmas show in this format, and and I really enjoy this because essentially what we do is each of us gift the other two something to watch. And we just talk about it. We have fun. We have some drinks. Um, and, and by the end of the episode, hopefully everyone's a little, uh, little cranked, as the kids say. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, that, that, that's pretty much my spiel to open up the show. Um, Phil, any, any words that you want to, 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 to pass along? Oh, well, you know, obviously the sentiment to all of our listeners, whether new or old or really old, is to have a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and, uh, well, we'll be talking to you a little bit before the New Year, but, you know, just uh, be safe out there. I know it's a crazy world, and, yeah, I, I think that pretty much captured it, though, when, when you were talking about the the inclusive discussion that you get at your comic book store, or even your video game store. Yep, right? exactly. Because you walk into those places, and it's kind of like there's a community, and there's an opinion, and there's friendliness about it it's not you like this or you don't like this so you're wrong it's about oh why do you feel that way about it and i I like that about the show and i think that that's what the listeners really vibe with as the kids would say yeah that i agree that that's exactly it you know um that's that's pretty much the perfect way to put it tyler how about you That's so why I, I, I mean, I try to do some extra prep and, and, you know, saying deep things can be tricky. And at the time of recording, we're staring down the barrel of, it really, it seems like we're, we're stuck in, in Groundhog Day, right? Of we're going probably back into lockdown, stuff is probably going to be pretty dark um, again pretty soon. And I, uh, you know, whatever holidays you're celebrating or, uh, you know, you're being cautious and not celebrating this year, um, I just, I hope that we can give you a little light of, um, of just, of just good positive feelings. Um, the same way that I, I think we all try to make sure we give each other and we jump on the podcast. And I mean, yeah. In the last episode, especially, you can tell how much Phil and I were trying to get Boris's goat and get him laughing um, <laughs> after a rough day. So, yeah, I, I I hope that you enjoy this. Exactly. So I think well, without- unlike last year, when we got to the end of it and we had probably the happiest Christmas show. And I somehow managed to sabotage it into depression. <laughs> no, it was good. Feeling your feelings. Even just, if they're sad, doesn't mean that it's that not was, happy. It was just we were on the downside. I love it. <laughs> of that hill. <laughs> so taking that into consideration, we are changing the order of who's going up first. Um, and, and, and it's funny that you even bring that up because I was actually going to make that joke uh, that, uh, you know, after last year's, uh, you know, we're all on the ledge. Uh, thanks to Phil at the by the end of the show, um, you know, he is now going first. So without further ado, Phil, you are going to be going first as we talk all things Labyrinth. 
Like, look. All right. So I chose 1986 Labyrinth, Jim Henson. Classic flop at the box office. Um, and cult classic, I would say. Now, I didn't pick this movie to talk about it. To be honest, this is probably the one Jim Henson movie that I have done the least amount of digging in the background of because of where it landed between Dark Crystal, Jim's death, uh, the epic failure that it ultimately was, monetary-wise, was something that hurt Jim deeply. And I didn't really choose it to go into the the in-depth thing, but it did dawn on me when we were doing our little summaries or, or our collecting of thoughts for the movie, I did look up some facts. And most of these facts, I just accept that I live and breathe every day. But I realize that everyone might not know them. So I might bark out a couple weird facts or something during all this. But I'm just curious what you guys, what your experience was watching this. Because I don't know how intimate you are to the movie. And it's not that I want to do the analysis right away. It's more so I want to know your experience of watching this film either for this show, if it was the first time, maybe the first time you saw it, or maybe you're just overall feeling towards it. Tyler? So I hadn't seen this in over a decade. Um, and wow. Oh, I, I had honestly had a bad time. <laughs> it's like, oh, rewatching this on... Saturday. I don't know. I don't know whether I was in a bad position for it or whatever, but like, oh, oh, this movie's not aged great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I do know that from some of my work on Jim Henson, like, like work being like research reading books about him, I have seen Labyrinth described drastically differently by biographers of Henson. I've seen right. some people, like you say, like talk about how like this movie made half of its budget at the box office, and that being like it's not good. And I've had people be like, "That was Jim Henson's plan all along. He like oh purposely designed this to be a cult movie, and like it's made tons of money since then." And it's just like I don't know, man. No, don't no. know. No, he was he was quite upset. <laughs> Boris, what did what what was your finding on a rewatch? It's this? funny because like I just like Tyler, I haven't seen this movie in honestly over a decade. I saw this when I was a lot younger, and just like Tyler, like and and similar to my movie, right? Like it just does not age well um, for 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 many reasons that we'll probably touch on. Um, but yeah, like it, it it's it was a rough go, and like I said, all I can think of was just like this is literally. A movie about a teenage spoiled brat who's on an acid trip like like yeah. there was no other way that I could see that this movie um, you know but you know if we're if we're really going to start talking about stuff soon like you know for me what really stood out was it really reminded me a lot of the movie the return to Oz have you guys ever seen that yep. no I haven't you should check it out. Or if I have, it was yeah, it was in the background. Yeah, it's it's it, it's not a good movie. It is. It was. It, it's it's trying to be the Return to Oz is trying to kind of be like the official Wizard of Oz sequel. 
um, stars one of the one of the crazy chicks from from the craft. Uh, the the villain from the craft. Anyways, and, and she was just like a girl dancing back then. But it's just like a very creepy sequel to the Wizard of Oz. And these the effects that they use, the practical special effects, and the animatronics, and a lot of that stuff really reminded me a lot of of of, of this movie, the the Return of Oz. Um, and and, and just kind of like in the same vein, where it's like it it doesn't know what it's trying to be outside of this movie with a bunch of animatronics and let's show off what Jim Henson can do and what like you know and stuff like that right um and 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 featuring Frank Oz somewhere right like that that's essentially what I felt like this was um and and it was just like it's a very, very weird movie you know it's funny you should mention the Frank Oz thing did you know Frank Oz yes was in this movie but did you know what character he played and he didn't lend his voice at all to this movie. No. Tyler, you probably know because you've you've reading it. He's Oh, I'm I'm brain farting. He's either he, he's the I man know. with the bird on his head. Oh, not who I thought it was. Yeah. I, I was try, I was having a moment of I know the guy who does the voice for Ludo couldn't like physically could not wear the costume all the time. Yeah. So half the time it's someone else in the costume. Yeah, no, he he played the Birdman. Not the bird, not the man's voice, but he puppeteered the Birdman. Sure. It's kind of funny, you know, like, to be honest, this movie for the Henson buffs out there would be the movie that Brian Froud, who did a lot of work on Dark Crystal, and his wife, Wendy, who did a lot of work on, obviously, Dark Crystal Labyrinth and... Dark Crystal Age of Resistance and their son Toby, who is actually the baby in Labyrinth. Who's named Toby? Who was yep. named Toby <laughs> in the movie. In yeah. This movie so, yeah. Um they uh they they had a whole bunch of ideas, and what they did was they wrote a piece about the goblins of Labyrinth. And that's basically what the movie's based off of. So yeah. I, I agree with you guys. Like the movie was assembled to be skits. Yeah loosely touching by a pretty poor story right but the story itself went through 25 different rewrites and 25 different authors sure and i think that the movie suffers from that like it's a lot of stuff right it's 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 fraggle rock writers touching it yeah it was it was who who was it terry jones from 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 uh monty python was the original writer of it so it's pretty incredible how many talented people touched this, but how that evidence borne through on the actual fu- finished product. Yeah. What's funny also is I, f- I feel like the involvement of David Bowie kind of also hurt the overall flow of the movie, right? Like mm-hmm. they needed to, for David Bowie to be David Bowie in this movie. Like, you know, they needed to add the music. They needed to add the, the musical elements just to, not not even appease David Bowie, but kind of show off the fact that we, hey, look, we got David Bowie. Well, and and like, why would you like if you're gonna get David Bowie and he's not gonna sing? And it's the '80s, especially. Why are you getting David Bowie? Exactly. Oh yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, like, it. Why are you paying David Bowie money? Yeah, exactly. So I don't know how th- that 
came about. I don't know if he was intended to originally the, or always play that character, but like it, I feel like his inclusion kind of uh, was was kind of shoehorned in somehow. Um, yeah. No. Well, actually, he was pretty involved all the way throughout. Like, obviously, it wasn't him spinning the balls. Um, oh, there shit. was a lot of body work done. Uh, but the other person that was being considered for casting was Michael Jackson. Which, if you want to talk about aging badly, one of the things that didn't age badly was the inclusion of David Bowie, if you ask me. Yeah. Because, you know, if you would have put a suspected or an accused pedophile in this, man, oh man, does that ever get different fast, right? So that that was a breath of fresh air for it. Now, I, I just want to quickly rewind, though, because I know I've talked about it with you guys, maybe personally and maybe on the air. But in 1986, this was the first movie that I went to without my parents. Oh, interesting. So this was this was me meeting up with a classmate at the time, Mark Reitman, and walking over to the film factory in Newmarket and the two of us paying our two, $2 Tuesday fee to get in and going to see Labyrinth. And the scandalous part of this movie for us, like there was two things we wanted to see. All right, because this thing was being marketed at the time or I had sniffed out that George Lucas had something to do with this movie. He did right. because George Lucas was the was the editor. Yeah. Right? So instantly I was just like yes, all yes for me. And it was one of the few movies that had a special effect made by a computer mm. and that was the opening <laughs> sequence yes. with the owl. That yeah. was a very expensive sequence because no one had done that on film to that point on a big, big production basis. So that was one of the landmark things that we were just like jaws on the floor. And then the inclusion of the word hell was just something that Mark and I were like, we are adults now. We're at the movie theater and they almost swore. Right. Right. So that was the point that was the point at which I grew up with Labyrinth and the relation the touchstone that I had with it. It was funny because on the 20th or the 25th anniversary they had a showing of it down on somewhere on Bloor Street near where you are Boris. Yeah the the, the, the it's at uh, Bathurst the, the Ted um Yeah. Yeah, Rogers uh, uh, theater there. Um yeah. the Hot Docs, Hot Docs, that's what it's called. Yeah, well whatever it was before that was when I went there to watch this. And this was my first time seeing it in the theater since the 80s. And the thing is, is that there was a bunch of stuff that I was completely oblivious to with this movie. Most of them surrounding David Bowie's crotch. Okay? I had not taken note of the cod piece. I mean, and it turns out everybody in the theater was already all over this. Like, you know, the internet was interneting. And I was just like, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. Rewatching this in this crowd, having all the people in costume with these massive, like David Bowie units. And then the applause when the scene comes up with him and Hoggle and you get the full on cod piece with right. Hoggle's head. Yeah. So, there are some things in this movie that are extremely weird and dumb to a person that make it more forgiving than what you guys had to endure, at least for me, when I rewatch it. Yeah. 
Another sure. big thing for me was I was actually scared by two scenes in this movie. Number one was the fireies. Okay, those fireies, if you listen closely, one of them is voiced by his first job, Kevin Clash, the guy who did Elmo. <laughs> and that voice is pretty much Elmo's voice. It is crazy how on point it is. It was a technical masterpiece at the time. It did not age well about how they did the blacks, the green screening and everything for the fireies. But the other part that really bugged me was the old lady and the hoarding. Which brings back to a point that we were talking about with the Wizard of Oz. And that was one of the books that was put on Sarah's back was the Wizard of Oz. So the movie recognizes where it is in pop culture. Mm -hmm. It's very self-aware. And when you actually watch the movie again, at the end, you'll see that every single character in the movie is in her bedroom, including the Goblin King. Yeah, I know. So yeah, that's where the acid trip comes from, like that, and aside from the content in the movie, for sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 I don't even know, like, who hasn't seen this movie? I, 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 I guess I guess you guys approve though that there is an element that maybe not have, has not seen the movie in a long time. But I guess if you're looking for a synopsis, it's basically a 16 year old girl who has a stepbrother and an evil stepmother, very formulaic. Wait, um, well, allegedly evil. Yes, by her standards, which is a yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> this everything was a great is not movie. fair. Everything yeah. is not fair, right? This was, and, sorry, go ahead. Tyler. This is another movie where it was like, the older I get, the more I'm like, I agree with the adults. Yep, exactly. Yep. Yeah. They were tired. like, we said if you had nothing else on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's painful in some parts in her childness, childlessness or whatever. But apparently there's a big thing on the internet that thinks that maybe she's her character is autistic has a slight autistic streak and they have self-admitted to possibly giving into a a, a spectrum of autism in asperger's disease Mm. with her because everything is so literal which is her understanding of the world going into the labyrinth and her digesting the fact that she can't live in a literal world. She can't live in a world on her standards. That's what the movie is really ultimately about is her coming of age and understanding that she has to live in the world by other people's standards. It's not fair. It's not a valid argument. And don't be a dick about it. And don't be a dick about it. And then she's like, like it's kind of funny because like at, at the start, like and 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 anytime I watch this as a child, because I used to watch this movie, not like a lot, but you know, here and there, um, it, it, I never really realized this. But watching it this time, it it, it became so apparent apparent how much of a bitch this character is at the start of the movie. Oh, big time! She's having a bad day. Yeah, she's having a bad day. Right, like. Everything about that, yeah, it's. But ultimately, though, it's a journey, right? It, yeah, it, it really is a journey, and you have to exaggerate where you start from in order to have. And and I don't even think they landed that journey properly. I think that they had to rush parts of it, and I think that 
there's a lot. It was filmed partially in New York, partially in England. I think there was a lot left on the table as far as editing goes and whatnot. But a lot of it, I think, as well has to go to the fact that effects aren't, you know, they're not easy at that time. They were practical effects. And, and I, I love practical effects. Let me tell you that. Like, I really do enjoy practical effects. And and it's not even the effects that bothered me. It was more just like, just, 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 I don't know how to describe this. Um, there was, there was parts with the bubbles last night that were really bothering me. Like really, really, I got the idea and I've seen it a thousand times, but it looked bad in 4k. Looked really bad. It just felt off. Right. Everything else, like I can totally get Hoggle with five motors in his face. You know, that was Brian Henson, his son. That was him doing the voice. That was one of his first times voice acting. His daughter, Cheryl, did one of the fireys and whatnot. Like, it was a family process. And I know his daughter and him collaborated on this while they were doing the Dark Crystal. The Labyrinth was always something spinning, right? Because he'd seen Brian's artwork. He'd seen what was there. And that's why you get skits of substance. That's why you get skits that felt like they belonged in Monty Python. Like yeah. the little guys on the sticks, you know, yeah. fighting Ludo yeah. and the rocks and the absurdity of it all felt exactly like Monty Python does puppetry to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even the guys guarding the door, one of them always tells the truth. One of them always lies. The helping hands apparently was a very difficult scene. I I can imagine why. I mean, it's also terrifying. Oh, God. Yeah, that was the whole oubliette oh, yeah. and everything that was a word that i put into my vocabulary and i use that line so many times in my life where people are like do you know what an oubliette is no it's somewhere they put you to forget about you yep. <laughs> like i i just there's so many little one-liners and whatnot that i unpacked in 1986 that i carried with me in this tool bag that i thought Eh, this is kind of a mean practical joke because some of it still creeps me out. Some of it, I've just recently been able to watch this movie and not have those dreams. Like, not be bothered by the little kid inside of me that was just like, run. Like, yeah. when they're trying yeah. to pull her head off and shit, that shit bugged me. <laughs> it's like, terrifying. It was, because the music's happy. And that was one of the first times I've been exposed to juxtaposing a scene like that right as mm-hmm. and it hits hard when it's in the theater it's one thing when it's on the tv and you can tune out and ignore it for five seconds and look at your phone or whatever but when you're in an, a theater environment you have to concentrate on the movie and you you get transported differently into mm-hmm. that you know just like we all experience yeah. But yeah. Anybody have any like I, I don't think we really need to go over the plot. No. <laughs> it, so it, it's I, a scattering of stuff. The um you're taking it being like it's really almost more better understood as a series of skits really makes sense and, and resonates with me. Cause like one of my things when I was like rewatching this is the setup is that this is gonna be a classic fairy tale, right? Of we're gonna have a character with flaws who goes on an adventure and learns some lessons. And we have a message. And that's all fine and dandy. But like, as I was watching that and thinking that was the frame we're going with, 
the only <laughs> lesson I was left with was might makes right, which is like a dark sentiment to go with a movie of like might makes right. And sometimes making friends makes you might. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Well, I really enjoyed it got heavy handed. It got sure. Sesame street level, but with Ludo walking around going, Sarah friend, you know what I mean? Like sure. him obsessing over her being a friend, that constant back and forth between Hoggle and yeah. Sarah about friendship, because these are creatures that don't know friendship. They're in a world where everybody has to fend for themselves. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's an army and it's oppressing you. Mm -hmm. And it's led by this asshole, Jared. Right? So that's what they're trying to paint. And then along comes this messiah figure in their world, you know, and who's naive as all shit, you know, doesn't doesn't think the fairies are gonna bite her type thing. And takes everything for granted. Like, you know, uh, she can't accept the visible and invisible truths, right? She can't accept that the world changes. Because that's what the little people were doing by changing her, her clever little lipstick trick is just changing the world. That's they're just fucking with her, right? And they're teaching her that lesson, and the lesson that she's teaching her compatriots is that I can offer you friendship and it has value. And what they offer her at the end is their continued friendship, because I say if you ever need us, all you have to do is just fucking say so. Yeah. Right. That was the story that I got out of it. That was the story that I took with me as a kid. And that always resonated value to me. So, yeah, Boris, makes sense. Have any? No, just, just really listening to a lot of what you're saying. Like, you know, I know that it, 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 it you know, talking about the fact that this does feel like a bunch of skits together you know as did the wizard of oz the way that the wizard of oz was was is kind of put together and slapped on together and edited together it also does feel like a bunch of skits together yes a bunch of skits that make more sense than this movie but still like it's it's a very very like all right you know enter characters in this setting and then you know then then, then mm. it's a with very clear breaks in in between you know uh, when dorothy finds each of her companions right similar to this movie um so that's kind of the thing uh the the scene that that always stood out even as a kid and really stood out when i rewatched this today um was the 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 sphere the ballroom uh scene mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know it's, it's equally it's, terrifying like it's really weird, you know, and I'm and I was trying to watch this not like as a as you know as as, as a joking at all where where you know where the Jared character is like stalking her, right? Um, it's more of of mm. like there's just a lot of weird stuff happening in that in that scene, um, and that's kind of like where it, personally I see like where the main character kind of or, or Jennifer Connelly kind of does her maturing does her growing up where she sees that she's just another person in the world right and and uh, the world kind of doesn't revolve around her um you know and, and and that that scene always really uh stood out for me um because you know she was able to um to forgive 
uh, the, the I forget what what his name is, the little character, the guy Toby. The, yeah, Toby. Uh, for for poisoning or her Hoggle. for Hoggle. Hoggle yeah. for poisoning Hoggle. her with a peach. Yes. Exactly. Um. So yeah, you know, like that's where you I kind of see like the mature the, that that flip and that maturing. But it was just it's always an interesting scene for me, and um and and it's one of those scenes where like personally I always say where it's kind of like okay this is like you know just made for 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 David Bowie and let's 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 promote a song of his. That was a gift to him. That scene, the scene for me that was very close to that that was led into by what you're talking about is actually like I was saying when she's sitting in the room and the hoarder lady is piling her belongings yeah. on her and she's making her, her, she's making her another hoarder. And mm-hmm. she's like, sit in your pretty chair, put on your pretty makeup. You know, yeah. don't you like your panda slippers? You love yeah. your panda slippers. And she's putting all the stuff on her and building it up. Right. The wizard of Oz book stood out to me clear as day last night. Yeah. And it's like, that to me was the moment where she's like, Screw this. I'm going to go get that, get this done. Like yeah. this, this has got it. Like, I'm not going to sit here. I was really proud of her in that moment. That was the red or blue pill. Right. Like she had a choice at that point to just sit there and just be like, mm, I'm just going to live in my room, you know, with this creepy pod being <laughs> now some funny things about this thing. Apparently they lost hoggle. Oh, really? What? They lost Hoggle in a baggage incident, and he is now currently on display in the unclaimed baggage area in Scottsboro, Alabama. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. So, yeah, still that's one of the oddities still on display in Alabama is Hoggle. That's amazing. So, on so many levels. Yeah. It's it it really was an oddity movie, just like Dark Crystal was, and it will always have a place in my heart. Yes, it doesn't age well, but do you have any favorite scene, Tyler? I don't know. I or one that jarred you more than most. Well, I mean the I mean the yeah the, the issue is you've already said both of them. Of yeah. um, the the two most powerful scenes, I think are the um the hoarder scene. And the ease with which, like, it's like all these creature comforts. And that is one of the moments where I think that you really start to see, like, what could have been going on here. Um, and the other one was, uh, again, like you said, the the ballroom scene, which I don't know if you've ever read or seen Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. No, no, I can't say I have. So phenomenal, phenomenal book, phenomenal series. Um. But one of the bits in is there is a, a woman who is cursed that every night she has to go to a, this, this ball in the Fey world. Okay. And she does that instead of sleeping. So she's perpetually exhausted. And it's, it's for me, I hate being at parties or like mm. instances with a lot of people, but I don't want to be there and I'm not in the right mood. So that was such a good, just like, nope, don't want to be here. Don't be part of this. I'm out now. So, yeah. Yeah. And one of the other things was she had the Eichler on her wall, which I think was a very niche, obviously before the eighties, but it became popular in the Mm eighties. And I think that it's inclusion because even in my 25th anniversary Blu-ray version, Mm -hmm. I have a 4k version as well. But I have a limited edition Blu-ray version of the Eichler in 3D. 
So it's, it's, it, I just thought that that was low hanging fruit where they're like, wouldn't it be cool if we could film in the Eichler and have the baby crawling away and have nothing make any sense? <laughs> We've done it. Yeah. yeah. I was so frustrated watching that last night. And I'm like, God damn it. Somebody just grab the baby leg and be done with it. Just get him. <laughs> just Love it. Come here, you little bugger. <laughs> That's so funny. But yes, that was my gift to you guys. I hope you, I, I maybe I made it make a little more sense in context. No, you know, here's the thing about my this, relationship right? to it. I think that while we might not necessarily uh, I don't even want to say enjoy what, what, you know, what we're watching. The fact that you chose it, I know that it means something to you. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's what mm -hmm. this, that's what this discussion is about. It's not so much an analysis of the plot or whatever. It's right. more trying to figure out why did Phil pick this movie? Why did, um, you know, you know, what, what, what was the reason and why does it mean something to him? And that's really what this episode these Christmas episodes are about, right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of getting to know us on a different level, on a different plane. So that's kind of, you know, and then it, it's, that's why I find it so fascinating to kind of just listen to kind of like see how you juxtaposition, you know, how, what this movie means to you. The funny bit is, is I chose it because I have it on YouTube. I have it on Apple. I have it like I have it. It's probably my most transportable movie in terms of ease of watching it. <laughs> I had funny. so many avenues to watch it. And I'm like, screw it. Let's pick Labyrinth. <laughs> That's amazing. But yes, it, it does mean a lot to me by virtue of the fact that I have it on everything. Like it is something that I can go to. And if I'm in the bag enough, it's something I never want to go to. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, again, it's one of those movies that. It just doesn't age well, similar to my movie, which we'll talk about later, but uh, it just means a lot. So without further ado, I think we're going to move on. Uh, thanks, Phil and Tyler. I think we're going to move on to your choice. Yeah, it's Pig, starring Nicolas Cage. This movie made $3.8 million. It was not super well. Like it was, sorry, it was critically like acclaimed, and almost everyone who sees it, a lot of people love it. But, like, not a lot of people have seen it. And it's yeah. just, it's a weird, melancholic, and sad examination of, I mean, really, at the end of the day, it's the intersection of, you know, capitalist needs with trying to do an art thing and with trying to eat or support whatever you need in the world. And it is dark as a result. Yeah. All through the thing of Nicolas Cage hunting down his truffle pig. Yep. Like I say, that's why I say that's why at the top of the show I called this movie John Wick wrapped in bacon. Yeah, except <laughs> also like he doesn't John Wick. Yes. And it's just this weird it's also just such a surreal weird movie of it just like you keep thinking I mean, personally, I felt like I kept getting a handle on like this is where it's gonna go, and then it would just turn on you again. Yeah, there were some interesting scenes, right? Like, for sure. Um, mm -hmm. the, the scene that stood out the most to me is yeah. when they're in the 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 um, the restaurant fight club, right? Like, yeah. I was just like, what the mm. fuck is going on 
right now. What am I watching? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I that mean, was pretty out there. I mean, have either of you ever worked in kitchens before? Like, I oh, don't yeah. know. I used to run a kitchen. Okay. So I, I, I actually, I actually, um, and, and, like, I just love the the whole restaurant business, and it's just like I, I, mm. I, I, I still. It, it's a, for sure a passion of mine and it always has been and always will be. Um, so some of the things that happen in this movie, I'm like, I can really relate to like, you know, when, especially when he when uh, the, the climax, right? When he basically says, I remember every one and every order, right? Like, yeah, it's like, you know what? <laughs> I started thinking about this and it's like, if I saw you more than a handful of times i will remember exactly what i yeah. served you and whom you are and what your stories were right yeah and i i think that's also like i think that it is a bit of a turned up to 11 moment but people who work in kitchens are invariably like they're weird and like mm-hmm. often very intense and it comes from a factor of like working in a kitchen is broadly speaking an intense job because you don't really mm-hmm. get breaks yeah no you don't um you don't like, like you're supposed to legally, but you don't really get breaks. And almost every kitchen on the planet is understaffed. Like, yep. there's almost every single one is. I've never seen one that wasn't that uh, wasn't on a cruise ship. You just have to read like Anthony Bourdain to get yeah. an idea of the type of it's a pirate ship. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a kitchen's a pirate ship, and the lead pirates the cat is the chef, right? Like the mm-hmm. captain is the chef. And everybody else has like a place. Yeah. And you just have to fucking do your job right. You have to be competent. If you're good, you're even better. Yeah. Right. Which is why, and I love that you said that, Phil, because it's that scene when everything is coming together and they're at um, the restaurant and Nicolas Cage's character is basically questioning the chef that used to work under him, you know, um, X, Y, Z, right? Like it just goes to show you like, yeah. Uh, you know, if if if, if, if it, it, there's a lot to unpack on that scene, you know, namely for me, it was how bullshit the restaurant business is. Um, you know, mm-hmm. everyone's out there for themselves. Everyone is is you know, everyone can put on a a a, a second face. Um, you know, everyone's uh, at the end of the day looking out for themselves. Everyone is mm-hmm. selfish as fuck. That scene really resounded with me just because, like, I have worked with people who literally stole, worked with us just to steal yeah. recipes, right? Yeah. Like, I also think the other side of it, too, is is I don't think the movie settles on just, like, like and I agree with that, that that's the thesis of that scene, but I don't think the movie settles on just capitalism bad and capitalism ruin art because it doesn't because like you know despite that and despite making fun of the modernist food movement i mean we see nick cage's character robin like he can pull out the high-end cooking yeah and there's still value to that and it really seems like they're trying to go for the point of that scene especially is that he is not like he is doing this thing that he's doing it because it's popular, not because it's what he wants to do. Yeah. It also underpins a lot of what was going on because my take on this movie watching it was identifying super hard with protagonist and Nick Cage, Robin, Robin and Robin Feld. 
having the eidetic memory surface to become something it's like that that show off with the guy and going you worked under this you did this you undercooked this you didn't do this you're not supposed to be in that chair because you weren't a good enough chef for me and i fired you after two weeks as a sous chef you know what i mean like he was he was he was juxtap like he was saying yes the modern industry of restaurants is absurd yeah. What's going mm-hmm. on? The fact that you're a fucking fraud and serving this food to me right now is evident of that. But the thing is, I know everything about you because I knew you for two weeks of your life. And then he goes on at the end to be like, I remember every dish that yeah. this guy is Sheldon Cooper. Yeah. Like he's got an identic memory and he's been hiding it his whole life and he uses it to his advantage in order to succeed. And yet no one knows that that's a secret weapon. It's because the reason why his recipes are perfect is because he memorizes exactly what he needs to do for recipes. And he knows exactly when he served them, who he served them to, and what impact it had. And then he can weaponize it. That's his superpower. his, His weakness is the fact that he can't forget his wife. So what did he have to do? He had to create his wife in the real world and manifest her as the pig, which was ultimately the crucible of the whole movie is pig. Hence the name pig. Right. And the pig didn't know how to find truffles. He does because of his skill set. Yep. They established that in the opening scene, the pig was fucking around. He was digging up truffles. But, but it's subtle. And if you weren't, a lot of people, Oh, I caught it right away. And I'm like, Bill had it. Oh, okay. I had the movie uh, completely unraveled. Like, aside from the side turns all the way through that you guys are pointing yeah. out, like the fight clubs and all this absurdity and the, the relationship, which again paralleled the relationship of Nicolas Cage to his wife, then the kid to his father, to mm-hmm. the kid's mother, and the complexities there within. Like, all of that hit on me too, where I'm like, oh crap, like, bravo, you added an extra layer. You know, like if you're coming from Nicolas Cage's side, you're going to identify the story this way. But if you're on the kid's side, you're going to identify with the loss of father figure, the 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 empathy towards the mother. All this stuff is going to dawn on you and you're going to get the sense of loss there because you bear responsibility for losing the fucking pig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So it attacks you emotionally from two different angles, which is why it wrecked me. So. But it, I think it's hilarious because everybody takes something different away from a movie. And like, I mm-hmm. find the soft, smushy center. And I'm like, damn it, that ruined me. And not because of the heavy handedness, it was because of the subtlety. I mean, I'm with you. I mean, the, what, what got me was the baker. Because <clears throat> the baker is the opposite of. Uh... Yes, she doesn't have the identic memory. She no, 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 but, but I mean, she's the opposite of the ba- of the chef from Erudis, the like yeah. high end crazy. Oh yeah, of she just was like, yeah, but liked her, but she could have been good enough. She was like, no, nah, I'm just being a baker, and like I don't have to work as hard, and I'm just doing what I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she didn't get caught up in the bullshit and chose that instead. And yeah, and but he still remembered her fondly. He still went to her in loyalty. Not a loyalty. It's because he had to have the exact same loaf of bread. Well, it had yeah, nothing to do with loyalty. Bread. Interesting. You're right. Because what it was is, you know, I, I, 
is it is it his his hunt for perfection no matter what the cost is yeah right right and that's why he's like no it has to be the exact same meal because he talks to her about like making sure she's using the same water and making sure she's using the same mm-hmm. ingredients and stuff which um to nerd out about food for a second people of j kenji lopez alt and others have done tests and most most people in fact i think they found not even most super high-end chefs can tell the difference what water you make a meal with it doesn't change anything. oh if it's purified or if it's not it doesn't matter 99 percent of the time it oh doesn't matter it will matter for like if you're doing like a ferment because it'll like but that, then it's because it'll change like your percentages of of chemical reactions but even then it's it's like it's minor yep it's interesting though that's fascinating yeah. i to be honest this was the first movie i watched too so I was just like, I wanted to get this one out of the way because I had already started it once. And I was just mm-hmm. like, damn it, this is going to be a slog. Emotionally, not in a bad yeah. way. But yeah, yeah, I've been waiting to tell you that for like a month now. I'm with you. Damn it's it. an emotionally devastating movie. Like it is just like, you know, let's hold up the the question of why we do jobs like why we all do the things we do versus yeah. like what you gotta do and I, I think to its credit it doesn't I don't think it's super didactic about its answer I think it ends up being oh. like we're critical about some of these questions but I don't think Robin Feld or Nick, Nick Cage's character is supposed to be 100% right no, I think he makes some solid dude, points, but I don't yeah. think he's right. He's diabolical in what he did at the end, right? With 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 Buddy when he thought that his pig yeah. was still alive, right? Like he yep. was fucking diabolical what he did. Um, that just goes to show you, like you know, even in this world of good and evil, of 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 good and bad, there is always going to be a shit ton of gray, right? Like everyone's always mm-hmm. going to to kind of to get what they want. How far are you willing to go, right? Like, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how pure you think you are, something is always going to get that kind of like that, that bad out of you. Yeah. Now that you bring it up, the contrast between the way that he chose to go out and just live in a shack and raise a pig and very loosely maintain any connection to the restaurateur life. Well, right, like completely disengaged compared to his friend who just takes a Joe job or, you know, has her own bakery yeah, and continues to exist. And therefore he can find her. Hey dude. Right. But anybody couldn't find him in many because of those choices he made. Like, and it was just interesting. The whole comment on everything from that perspective. It's the extreme of what Anthony Bourdain did, right? Like he said, fuck it to the industry and kind of did his own thing. Well, kind of. And then, you know. He, he did his own thing. He did his own thing, right? Like, I'm not saying he he lived in a shack or anything, but he, he, he essentially said fuck it to the restaurant industry to a certain extent. Yeah, but he just plugged into the entertainment side of it, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I, no, I, I, I'm agreeing with you, but I also think that this movie does a good job of it's 100% thinking about Bourdain. Yeah. 
and the fact of no matter what you do, you are, you cannot get out of the system. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think it's worth remembering that, like, truffles are worth a fuck ton of money. Oh, it's insane. And and Nick Cage's character, I don't know if you, if you, if you clocked this, but he's not getting paid. Right? Like, he yeah. just gets, like, stuff from a mirror. Mm-hmm. When it's like a single truffle is like twenty five to four grand, twenty five hundred dollars to four grand. Yep. Oh, yeah. Gotta order me some truffles. What's more interesting though is that like you know there there's so much hint at what's to come throughout this movie, even mm-hmm. um, at the start where where you're kind of being introduced to the character and he's preparing food. The way that he was preparing the whatever he was making, but I guess it was either either a pasta or a bread. Just the the, the technique he was using, you knew that this guy was something in the restaurant business. Like the way that he was doing it, is not just anyone would make it like that. Like you know, um, yeah. he he what I'm, he knew what he was doing is what I'm trying to say. Oh, I'm with you. Yep. So I kind of like the movie about that. Like, and then it's like kind of putting everything together. Um, and this wild goose chase. Um, and it, the other thing that I really enjoyed about this is it just goes to show you how some, something that you would never think about, you know, the truffle farming industry and how cutthroat it could be. Um, cause when they make that first pit stop, right to the truffle farm and the chick freaks out, it's like, you know, you're going through my, my, my crop, you pieces of shit. Like, you know, um, it just, I know that it's thousands and thousands of dollars, but that's the point. That's the Mm -hmm. point I'm trying to make. It's like, you know, it's something that you would never suspect. It's fucking truffles. It's fucking mushrooms. It's a fucking fungi. And, 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 and how people react in those industries, um, you know, to competition and whatnot. Well, and the sacredness of the pig. Yes. Well, sacred, and those right. pigs and and dogs are also used regularly in real life. Regularly, are like people steal them and stuff. Yep. Like that's a real problem. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I was just like, this is echoing a genuine real world issue. Like this yeah. is the way that the people mobilized, and you know, we're gonna go get them and blah 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 blah. And second, oh, yeah. why are you farming my truffles? You know, all that kind of stuff. You hacks, and then they get exposed for what they are. Right? It's just. Man, it's a tough place. <laughs> but yeah, it was like I, I honestly really did enjoy this movie in the grand scheme of things. I wasn't sure what to expect, uh, you know, and but I really did like this. Again, again, just being in the restaurant business, it's like I could relate to it mm-hmm. on to certain levels that that you know, it's just like, oh yeah, I can see why this, this is going on like this or you know whatever. Yeah. Um, but I really did enjoy this movie a shit ton. No, it, 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 for the audience, if you haven't seen it, Pig is, is worth seeing. Yeah, we just ruined the crap out of it for you, but we'll put a spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> um, the thing that I found was really difficult, and that's emotionally why I identified so hard into the replacing of a loved one with an animal or linking them somehow emotionally, is that after my mom passed, I know that mm. my cat who she met and liked professed to me that she liked him, which was Mm. a big stretch for any of my family to like an animal. Yeah. Always was special to me. And when he passed, it was emotionally devastating to me 
partially because of that attachment. And I'm like, oh shit. Yeah. And then to yeah. see it on screen, and I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. Other people do this too. Like loss is loss, grief is grief. Yeah. And you know, you vehicleize that when you're not ready to deal with it. You exactly. Mobilize it and compartmentalize it, and you're like, all these things. He couldn't bring himself to listen to the audio tape, right? Like all these things he kept on trying to steer into the headlights. Yeah. And then he'd be like, no, I'm self-sabotaging myself. Nope. 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 Pig. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. He was just, it was just such a rejection. Oh, it's just so. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Like for me, like that, what really stood out there is kind of like, you know, that, that everyone suffered a loss in this movie, right? That the, 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 the the three, I guess, for lack of a better term, three main characters all suffered losses and they all replaced said loss with something. One yes. with a pig, one with material goods, and one with kind of power. Yep. Yeah, big time. I, I love that parallel. I love that contrast. I I do also love... It's a small character note, but it, it was one of the things that, to me, sold this movie was so Amir, who's the character who is like who who is the go-between for Robin and the rest of the world. Um the fact that he listens like prior to his arc, he's he just listens to podcasts about classical music. Yeah. Yeah. We never see him listen to classical music. And it's just, it's such a clever little bit that all oh, it just commentary. It's oh it's so commentary. good. Like it's like you know you're a faker when well, yeah, I don't think that he's a faker. I think it's that he doesn't, prior to actually experiencing stuff, he doesn't understand, right? I think it's just he is, it's not even he's a faker. It's he does not understand I, what I it totally means to the music. I read that as he's a pretender. He's, he's faking his way through not only his own industry, because his dad wouldn't lend him any knowledge, mm -hmm. but the fact is, is that he learns everything in an, an auxiliary way and he can't appreciate the art form he has to understand the analysis in order to pass the bullshit test with people. So he can't pass the bullshit test, which is why he bridged with Robin with yeah. the truffles into the industry, because he needs to be able to have a footing to go into those chefs and have legitimacy for having the truffles in order to get the pay. Hmm. And I saw it as, oh, yes, listen, you're listening to. Beethoven's blah 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 and then he'd be able to spout off a useless fact about that music that was the way that my mind imagined that I, I saw it as a pretentious thing I mean I, I think like we, a, yeah. a vehicle I saw it as manipulation interesting but that was my read we never saw that mm -hmm. I'd be curious to look at uh, the 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 extras if there are any I, I think there are because I, I noticed them on my friend's Plex, which I had to warn everybody on the Plex, um, get a box of tissues. Fair. I mean, I, I don't know. It's it's a really rough movie to talk about, and I think that's just kind of where it's I like, at. I like the discussion, though, because we got such different things out of it. Oh, totally. I was not like, expecting... It's like book club. It's like yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I was saying. not expecting. So where you came from, it, Phil, and like I thought to say, like, Phil, you're talking out your ass. As we've been like, I didn't expect some where you're coming from, and you've given me stuff to like. Okay. Phil, well, did you have to you go listen watch to a it podcast about this movie and then talk about <laughs> a bullshit. No, I've been sitting on this. I've been cooking it for a month. Love I'm it. serious. I I was actually going to write it down, 
And then nice. I thought, no, I don't want to seem like I'm reading off of a teleprompter because then you guys are going to think it's bullshit. Nope, right? I got notes. This is my labyrinth notes and doodles. <laughs> oh, the goblin face. Love it. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to do one of the goblin faces. I was like, there's something about these faces that it's the whole thing. It is the pod people from Dark Crystal. <laughs> So any any final words of Tyler before we move on to the last film? I two last quick things. I think I think we can all kind of agree that that this movie is in part about Nick Cage's attempt to relate to his own career. Yes. Mm-hmm. And his attempt to create to relate to Hollywood and his own kind of like weird self exile. Mm-hmm. He's talked about like he loves doing indie movies, and. I could not find any evidence on how much it cost to make this movie. And I tried, but like no one has that data. Yeah. So I'm curious if he even made, if he even charged for it. I wouldn't be surprised um, if he didn't. I mean, he, he has said recently he loves doing indie movies because they're so weird. He's rolling with Con Air money, baby. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's gone bankrupt, I think, twice. Yeah, that doesn't reasons. shock me. He had to sell yeah. uh, his Superman Action Comics number one. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if you, either of you knew this. Did you know he's Francis Ford Coppola, Coppola's nephew? Yep. I know. He's I a somewhere back there. I, I, I knew known that. that there was a relationship. He, he was actually in Godfather Jason. number three. I didn't know that. I know he is. Yeah. I, I learned from researching this. He is a Coppola. That's actually like his name with yep. Nick Coppola. Yep. Wow. And he is also cousins with Jason Schwartzman. Yep. Weird stuff. Hollywood's very small. It is. It's a lot smaller than it's you think. It's almost like nepotism exists. <laughs> <laughs> Pink and commies. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, they're not going to be happy with us after this one. Oh, no. Oh, God, no. All right, next hour is the final movie. Oh, do we have to? I know. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey. I I'm fucking decent. sat through your bullshit. Um, wow! I'm not. Ta- I'm oh talking to God. Phil. I'm not talking to you, Tyler. Because of the three movies, I did enjoy Pig the most. Um, Gremlins. So I chose Gremlins. And this movie, um, I don't know. The, the reason why I chose this movie, honestly, it's I saw this as a child, and it would constantly creep the shit out of me, um, especially stri- the Stripe character. Right? I even had a toy of Stripe, which was like. A whole other thing. Um, why would I have a toy of something that creeps me out? Um, uh, yeah, that's for all the therapists out there. Um, but yeah, for me, this movie just—it—it—it's it, like just remember, like I was super young when this, um, when I when I when I watched this, like this movie actually came out before I was born. The year before I was born came out in '84. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it just—it just—I just love these. T- these types of movies like I just like when when shit goes crazy and and um, you know and 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 hilarity ensues uh, this movie just really ultimately it was just it was just a fun movie when I was a kid now to be fair I haven't seen this movie in years 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 years, years. like we're talking probably like a good 20 to 25 years I haven't seen this movie and you know just like Labyrinth it just did not age well um and there's just like just like a lot of tropes in this movie and whatever but doing some research in about this movie um I kind of like appreciate it to a certain extent a little more 
I love the fact that this was um, an Amblin uh, uh, movie. So, you know, the Kathleen Kennedy was involved in this. Steven Spielberg was involved in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just personally, I, I just absolutely love that just because of the, you know, the, 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 the crap that Kathleen Kennedy gets nowadays, right? People need to remember some of the movies that she was involved with, like, you know, that she has her name directly attached to, um, you know, like, I don't, I don't think people realize the power that she has in Hollywood. Um, and, and the, chops. Yeah, exactly. This is a chops or a better way of putting it than the power, because like, yeah, that resume really I think speaks for itself. It yeah, that's yep. the thing. That resume just speaks for itself. Now, what's funny about this movie is that all right, so this movie only cost eleven million dollars to make, um, and it ended up grossing about two hundred and thirteen million domestically. So that's that's a pretty oh, yeah. pretty good penny. Um this movie on honestly was a huge hit. Um you know, doing some research about this movie like the writer Chris Columbus they didn't even write the full script. This was actually a spec script um that was just passed around Hollywood and Spielberg eventually somehow got it and he's like I want to buy this. So it was turned into hmm, a I'll full take feature. It. Yeah. Exactly. It was turned into a full feature um movie. Now you know, and, and and for me, again, doing the research, I appreciate a couple things about this movie a little more now. Um, and that's a fact of just how many rewrites and how many changes were made from the original, um, from the original idea. Like for for example, this was supposed to be a R-rated movie, in the more of the child's play type of movie, uh, because mm-hmm. in Chris Columbus's original script. The after Gizmo uh, created Stripe and the evil gremlins, they were actually supposed to decapitate the mother's head. Um, Yep. 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 They were supposed to eat the dog, decapitate the mom's head and do a bunch of other stuff like it was supposed to be in the in the child's play um, type of realm of movie. Right. Uh, but uh, it, it, it somehow because it just it just got changed, right? I th- I'm pretty sure someone looked at Gizmo and said, "Yeah, someone looked at Gizmo and said, this is it's too cute.' Like, there's no way that we can hey, make the movie. It's it's a furry baby Yoda. Yeah, exactly. Not wrong. Like, like exactly. honestly, if, if this is the thing, this is the great thing, Boris. You weren't alive when this movie launched. Mm-hmm. Neither were you, Tyler. Okay, because it's been over 30 years since I've seen this movie. Right, like it's been a long time, and I can tell you, I had a pet gizmo. I can tell you, every single freaking kid had a pet gizmo. I can imagine, like that was the toy in '84. Yep, and and there was pet gizmo with the Santa hat. There was pet gizmo without the Santa hat. There was pet gizmo, you know, the other gremlin guys that weren't striped. There was stripe as a mogwai. There was stripe as a gremlin. There was stripe as, like, it was insane. Mm-hmm. The marketing that went on with this movie, just for context, yeah, exactly. Uh, it may not be twenty-five screen rights and a Monty Python originating, but <laughs> sure, I'll give you that. No, no, but, no, what, <laughs> it's true. No, but like I noticed, this 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 movie was just absolutely bonkers huge. Like, look at that figures I throw at you, right? Like, cost yeah. eleven million. It made two gross two thirteen domestically. That doesn't happen and not be a popular movie. Now, this was actually supposed to come out in um, at Christmas time, but what happened was that uh, Amblin didn't have any 
um, I forget who the distributor is. They didn't have any movie to contend against, like Ghostbusters and Indiana Jones. So they put it, they moved it from December to the summer. Um, you know who was actually in talks to originally direct this movie? Hmm. Tim Burton. Well, sure. Yeah. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. I can. And see they were that. like, "We're gonna make it PG, and we we won't let you have the you won't let you have Helena Bonham Carter." And he was like, "I'm out." <laughs> well, funny you should say when that. Winona Ryder's not born yet. <laughs> they didn't even want to hire Phoebe Cates once they made the choice to make this like more of a family film. They didn't want to hire yeah. Phoebe Cates just because of the you know of of the topless scene at in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Like, it's just kind of funny, like, how controversial that one pool scene was for this actress. But, but it was actually her was... chemistry. It was actually her chemistry with Zach Galligan that got both of them hired. Yeah, but that, that, here's the thing, right? All the movies were like that. Back I know. Then. Like, 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 pervy porn movies were the 80s, like Porky's, Police Academy. And I slot, like, gremlins into that, like, the kitschy, like, the the thing that reminded me the most that this was exactly where it was supposed to go and it didn't go, Boris, when you were bringing up the horror stuff, I'm not shocked about it. No. But the moment that crystallized in my mind was when they microwaved the gremlin. Because I remember that scene more than any scene in a lot of movies. And I had forgotten it. The minute I saw it, I'm like, I remember going ape shit as a kid. They, they, they microwaved a fucking gremlin. Now, like that was the talk on the the, the town. Like that. Funny was just you like, say that, Phil, because shit. this movie couldn't be rated PG because you know of of certain things. It couldn't be rated R because of certain things. So this movie and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which came out that same year. Both inspired PG thirteen ratings, or here in Canada, AA, AA adult yeah. accompaniment, mm-hmm. which meant that you could get your older brother to take you. Yes, that's how loose and, and weird AA yeah. was. When Unless was it was NC seventeen, right? Like then, yeah. Well, yeah, which was X rated here in Canada. Yeah. Yep. Non classification seventeen plus, which almost was what happened to Clerks. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, no. So for, for for me, this like this movie is, is what this, it, it's. It, there's nothing hidden on the surface at the great in the grand scheme of things. Like there are some stuff. There is some, uh, you know, some some commentary to be said. But for me, on a personal level, this movie was just a a wackadoodle movie. Uh, you know, starring. With a, with the voice from Bobby's World, Howie Mandel, right? Like that's to me how <laughs> I always knew this movie. Um, and then yeah, it's just it's just a it's just a fun little Christmas movie because I originally did watch this movie around Christmas time, um, and it was a Christmas movie just because of uh, you know y- you know how things are. Here There's a there. lot of Christmas. Yeah, it's Angular Tomasino, uh, right? And it was originally supposed to be a uh, Christmas film, right? So and a release. So yeah, so to me, that's kind hey. of like what this movie just just really means. Judge Reinhold, Judge Reinhold, everybody, come yep. on. Yep, I would imagine that was one of his first feature films. Um, I didn't look it up. Uh, the one thing that did bug me, oh, was idiot kid's car. 
Yes. All right. When he gets out to it, the, the Volkswagen Beetle. When he gets out to it that first morning and the, the you know, the semi-racist ex-vet yes. neighbor, the guy, you know, about the gremlins and the war and the, all that stuff comes out and he says, you can't trust a foreign car. You can't trust a foreign car. How come everybody else's car from then on has like zero to little snow on it? But little Billy, holy crap. It looks like every snowblower in the neighborhood threw a mountain of frost and ice on his car. Like nope. his car got fade in the blizzard. And for the whole movie, his car is screwed to the point where he has to abandon it. Right. But everybody else's car. No problem. <laughs> like even the very hunks of crap. No problem. Going to drive to the bank. And who the fuck brings a dog to the bank? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you hide a dog for the day? Especially when you're trying to establish that the dog is totally rambunctious. Like, you know, like totally screwing over the neighbor lady who happens to control the entire town economically. Yeah. How the hell does that dog terrorize her, but yet lives nine hours a day between Billy's legs? <laughs> well, that's why. That's why. Well, maybe <laughs> he's, he's not got ball toner from Manscaped. Oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ. So on that, I actually watching this, rewatching it was like, holy shit, this movie is so anti-capitalist mm -hmm. and so anti-American. Yep. Because as Phil says, someone lips off about like, how dare you get a foreign car? And that person is not held up as a good example. And this movie is just full of critiques of American culture. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is. It really is. It's it really, really is. It's kind well, of the funny. whole the whole I want to buy the Mogwai. I'll yeah. just throw money at it until I can buy it. And then the end of the movie, the 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 you know, Chinese guy shows up and goes, You are very irresponsible and takes the Mogwai back. And I'm and like, You're not you're oh. not ready? Yeah, you're not ready. But that was Wait. a huge commentary. And I'm like, Yeah, he's not ready. Fuck, nobody is in this in this continent. I, I also wanna like like Briefly separately, briefly separately, why the fuck in the 80s and 90s were we obsessed with dads being inventors? Oh, God. You know what right? it was, honestly? It was, I honestly think because technology was just really booming at that point. Like, that's when computers and PCs were really starting to come out. Um, you it know, was. the shopping channel and shit like fire. that really inspired a lot of these things, right? Like, think about when... It was, it was the 80s. It was consumerism on think steroids. think about when some of these people would be writing these scripts overnight. So they probably had TV on, and the only shit that was mm. on TV was infomercials or shopping channels and shit like that a juicer so, man a yeah. juicer yeah you know like that was the constant barrage of failure and to the point where they're not even financially viable as a family right but the wife who controls the books isn't letting the husband know that was the big hush right yep it's like how close to the edge and how much they relied on their son to pay the bills because the father was this absolute train wreck and nobody could confront him about his inability to it to to provide as a father yep they just perpetuated the whole myth which again huge in terms of like critiquing america and critiquing these people who are who are like <laughs> noting that all of his inventions are crap mm -hmm. and they don't do anything useful they're pure garbage yeah <laughs> yeah 
and a, a, a smokeless ashtray. That was the only one because I actually remember those existing. Like, yeah, <laughs> not in that form. But That's so funny. I remember people buying them because of that. Like that is so oh funny. Um, you know, and and and, and it's funny because like also just doing some quick research. Um, you know, and I kind of knew this, but it just always made me laugh that remember those Furby toys? Well, WB did mm-hmm. in fact sue them, uh, the, the creators of the Furby toys, just because of how similar it looked to Gizmo. Um, yeah, they had opening and closing articulated eyes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the other yep. thing, uh, which I kind of agreed to is the director, Joe Dante, similar to myself, actually prefers Gremlins to over the first one. Fair. I like Gremlins 2 a lot. I was going to bring up the fact that this movie, Gremlins, was an excellent juxtaposition. I'll use that word a third time in our podcast. Or we all have. Or a contrast to Labyrinth in the sense that the practical effects, to me, they were good at times in Gremlins, mm-hmm. but they were atrocious other times. Yep, agreed. The stop motion was absolute garbage at yep. points, but it achieved what it needed to do. It was it was a big shot, right? Especially, like, yeah. They were big shots. I get what the necessary. I totally get it, but I'm like, they disguised it so much better in Labyrinth, and that was only two years later. I know. Right? And I'm like, the Goblin Army looked like a Goblin Army. Even though there is a whole bunch of stupid rocks rolling around and crap like that, there was things that it felt lifelike. And then there was scenes in Gremlins where I was just like, eh. but then it forgave itself. The bar scene with the with the actual Gremlins was hilarious. Yes. Like that was legitimately funny for all the wrong reasons. It's also like a huge critique of what in the era was seen as the excesses and failures of Western society. <laughs> Well, it was, it was, that's a big look at it. I think that it was a vehicle for parody all the way through. Like those gremlins were just such a a non-British. It was an American Monty Python take on commentary. Mm. Yeah. Right. Because they could make them do whatever. Where the hell would these things learn to dress like that TV, or to smoke like that? Or did establish they watched a lot of TV. Yeah, they did establish that, which was ultimately the old man's big thing with Gizmo, right? Like, how dare you let him watch TV? Yeah, Yeah, like, oh, that was the big undoing, right? And I'm like, and they do imply that, yeah, they do imply that the Mogwai are just like, oh, we'll just absorb anything. Yeah, that's true. Their love of Disney, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, with the Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Well, and then, then, like, oh, fuck. And then one of them is wearing the goddamn, like, yeah, it's such a critique of Disney in the West. <laughs> it is. It really is. One of them was wearing the the the, the Mickey ears. The, the, the ears. Yep. No, one hundred percent. It's like, look, we're, we're we're we don't we're uncivilized, but by God, we will consume Disney. But doesn't it, in a way, show that at that point, Steven Spielberg was really making a pop culture a lowbrow pop culture version of ready player one in, in that fact, like the way that ready player one was retroactively, not the movie, but more so the book was retroactively mining the eighties. He was actively doing it with that movie. He was doing it real time. And he's just like, I'm going to put all the pop culture 
all the things that kids absorb right into this, manifest it with demons, and make a soci- socio-political commentary subliminally right back at you. Yeah. I think that's reading a little bit too much into a shit movie. I, <laughs> no, I think that's 100%. I think, I think that the only difference I would say is I would say uh, wasn't subliminal. It was just right there. He was like, yeah, this is, this is what I am doing. Yes, hello. Um, and I, I would argue the only difference is is he's trying to say something about it. Yes. And, you know, I, I think it's, it is a pretty milk toast. like, hey, conser- consumerism, maybe, maybe not great. Maybe well, there's some, some downsides to rampant consumerism. To rampant just Western society and being alienated from the means of production. But then, like, versus Ready Player One, which is just like, remember how cool it was when Boba Fett wore the helmet? It was nostalgia. Yeah, it was nostalgia as a weapon, weaponized. So, going to your point, Phil, about Steven Spielberg and kind of just glamorizing the 80s and all that fun stuff. Remember, this is 84, right? What movie did he executive produce in 1985? Also shot on the exact same set as Gremlins. Was it Poltergeist? Back to the Future. Oh, okay. Which oh, jeez. Yeah, another. Yeah, that's of right those. up. Yep. When did he do Poltergeist? Since uh, eighty-seven or something. Like that? Oh, it was. I think it was later. later. Okay. Eighty-two. 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 Right. Well done. Oh man, I, I saw that at the Odeon too. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, I went, well, I went with Stephen Brunton and Michelle, his sister. <laughs> I needed I needed a 14 year old to get me in. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, but yeah. So, yeah, Gremlins is one of those movies is like for like on a personal level. It just it's it just there. It's always been there, um, you know, and it's kind of funny because like I believe I firmly believe that Labyrinth and Gremlins both have a place somewhere in pop culture. But 100%. I don't think that people would appreciate it the way that we did. I think people would appreciate it a little differently um, now um, if they were to watch it, like, you know, new for the first time. If you're a kid, maybe. But, like, if you were to watch it, like, even as a teen, I don't think you'd really like it too much um, just because of the animatronics, just because of the special effects and things like that. But, um, yeah, like, at the end of the day, you know, Gremlins is Gremlins. Gremlins is going to be a huge pop culture hit um labyrinth is going to be a cult turned into a pop culture hit and pig well i don't even know what to say about that also a cult also it looks like a cult hit yeah oh good good yeah to say the least uh so there you go that is it that's our, our 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 christmas roundup of pig labyrinth and gremlins um, again, guys, I want to thank you guys for honestly being part of this show. It's been a hell of a 2021. I know we still have one more episode of the year, but the Christmas episode for me is kind of like when we can. It's the last uh, real real episode where we have to do much thinking. Um, so I just want to thank you guys for being part of the team. I want to, you know, and, and, and hopefully that uh, we can continue the uh, our upwards trajectory into now Onward 2022. Exactly. You heard it from Boris. It goes downhill from here. But you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. If you want to find us on the internet, you can track us down at www.itscanonpodcast.com. 
You can look us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at It's Canon Podcast. You can email us at show at itscanonpodcast.com. You can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere where you find podcasts, you're going to find the It's Canon Podcast. So be sure to hit the subscribe button so you can be notified when we drop these crazy episodes. And uh, leave a rate and review if the platform allows it and tell your friends. So on behalf of Phil... all have a Merry Christmas. Yes, thank you, Phil. So on behalf of Phil and Tyler, I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, a Happy Holidays, a Happy whatever you're celebrating, and be safe out there. Exactly. Be safe out there. Um, You know, do your thing. Get some rest. Because 2022 hopefully will be a better year than 2021 globally. Uh, But, you know, the It's Canon podcast will be back because it is, in fact... The show that talks about anything and everything. We cover all things pop culture, all things geek, all things nerd. And the best part of it all is, is that just like it says on our show title, it's all in canon. He's Phil. He's Tyler. I'm Boris. Thank you and good night. <laughs>